Today we do come to the end of our series, Mantle, the end of our time with Elijah and Elisha. As a note, um, throughout this series I have been thankful for Peter Leihart and Sinclair Ferguson and some others. They've helped us in this series, and today is no different. The very idea that we will explore this morning, going halfway, comes from Ferguson, which came to him from a guy named B.B. Warfield, which came to Warfield from some Puritans, which came to the Puritans from the church fathers. Anytime, now hear this, anytime we come to the Bible, we stand on the back, the shoulders of those who have come before us. There is no such thing as just you and your Bible doing your inductive study, finding those little nuggets, all our understanding of the Bible, all of our excursion into his word is lined with the work of those who have come before us. There is no novelty in this book. There is simply developing a biblical view of the world and of life with God. It requires an imagination And that way is paved with the history and traditions of the church. Now, I'm not saying you don't get along with the Bible and God doesn't speak to you. That does happen. But our whole understanding of this book comes from those who have come before us. And you are simply made to receive. Receive from God through his word. Receive from God and all those others, men and women, who have loved this word throughout the ages. And so today, as we end our series, like we began, we're working off those who have worked through this before us. Now, our section of Scripture that we've covered started in the fall, part of the spring, and this summer, total of like 20 chapters, longer than Romans, longer than the Gospel of Mark. And what's developed here is a pattern. There is Elijah, and then there's Elisha. Because there was an Elijah, a mantle was given to him, a symbolic robe of the prophet, the man of God, the spirit anointing him for a work. And if there's an Elijah who received this mantle, there is an Elisha who also receives the mantle, and at the time cries out, Oh, oh, don't just give me the mantle, give me a double portion. And if you study the life of Elijah, he did double what Elijah did. But there is an Elijah, and there is an Elisha. And that is all pointing us to a pattern that we'll see later in the scriptures. When Jesus says to his disciples, you've heard that some are saying Elijah has come, thinking that maybe it's like a reincarnation of the prophet, a Uh, The prophet who didn't die, coming back to earth. But Jesus is quick to point out, no, no, Elijah has come. But he's come in John. And if John came, he's telling the disciples, you can expect another to come, and I am the other. The name Elisha means God saves. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, he is bringing a better, 
a fuller, a more complete salvation. So we see this first in our text when we read that Elisha is sick, sick with an illness that will kill him, and there's no successor. With Elisha, the mantle that is passed from Elijah to him will not be passed to another until it is passed to Jesus. Elisha will die without a human successor in that moment. Now, there will be other prophets. We, we see them leading the people in exile, see them during the exile, see them at the end of exile. And in some ways, they all carry with them the Spirit of God and His Word. But none of them will be quite like Elijah or Elisha. John and Jesus are the names of the successors to Elijah and Elisha. That's the pattern. Now today, we have two points. Contact with the dying prophet. And two, contact with the dead prophet. Now Jehoash, shortened to Joash, is now king in Israel. He's the grandson of Jehu, who we read about a little bit about last week. And this is an interesting thing about our text. We are told about Joash's life and death, and then we're given this fascinating interaction that Joash has with the dying prophet Elisha. It's like he's going back in time. Peter Lighthart said, it's like after he is buried, Joash visits Elijah. Now, he is very much alive in the story, but the story is being told in such a way that it's anticipating What's to come in verses 20 and 21? This is like the biblical imagination, y'all. Like the stories being told, formed, shaped, rehashed to people living in exile, telling them in such a way that they can anticipate what? Resurrection. The disturbance of the text order is an indication that the work of the prophets can't be reduced to a chronicled history, but their ministry burst out. Like new wine and old wineskins. It breaks out of time. It breaks out of death. The wind blows, we're told, of the Spirit where it wishes and it cannot be restored. The text, by its very way it's written, is telling you this. But with Joash, we read that he continued in the ways of his ancestor Jeroboam and sinned in the eyes of God. Now remember, Jeroboam, what did he do? He, he, we read about this in like the very beginning. He sets up two temples against the instruction of the Lord in the north, in Dan and Bethel. He, he sets them up out of convenience. He sets them up out of political advantage. He, he sets them up out of idolatry. He, he places golden calves at these temples, representing God, giving the people a God they can see, even though God says, you shall not give them a God that you can see. I am you want, and you're to live with me by faith. He repeats the sin of the Exodus. We too want a God we can see. We too want a God we can, can, can control. A God that will fix our lives on our terms. I don't know if you've heard this term. Um, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And this term comes from a soci Christian sociologist. His name's Christian Smith. And Smith says they did this big study of students in the mid, two, uh, around 2005. And what he discovered is that as he interviewed these kids who, who identified with Christian, as being Christian, that this is what they thought being a Christian meant. He says that God wants people to be good and nice and fair as taught in, Christ, in the scriptures. 
and most religions. Central to this is living uh, to, to be happy, to flourish. And then it gets interesting. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed. Like when there are problems. When we, we, we need rescue, God is largely uninvolved until he is needed for this help or rescue or to find a purpose to be lived out. Then God shows up when we want him and need him. This is moralistic therapeutic deism. And there's nothing new under the sun. In part, the religion of the north of Samaria, the religion of the kings of the Israel, is we want a God who comes to us on our terms. A God who will rescue us when we think we need rescuing. Uh, so, so creating a secondary and thirdly side of the temple out of convenience and political, uh, uh, p- political savviness makes sense in that sort of a world. So Joash, living in the sins of his Great, 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 great grandfather Jeroboam comes to Elijah. And so, do, and so he consults God's prophet, even as the prophet dies, because he needs something. Namely, help in defeating enemies. Joash comes weeping. Notice what he says My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, what's interesting is these are very close to the same words that Elisha spoke many chapters earlier when he sees Elisha going up to the clouds in a chariot of fire. But they're using it in different ways and for different means. How do we know? Well, in verse 7 of chapter 13, we didn't read that, but we read in that verse, there wasn't much of an army left for Joash. Fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand soldiers. That is a weak army, y'all. We also read about the fulfillment of Elijah's weeping prophecy that Hazael is the one who has decimated Israel's army. This is why Israel's army is this way. And now that same man is bearing down on them to finish Israel, to finish off her army, to finish off her kingdom. Thus, Joash visits the dying prophet. His concern is not so much the Lord and the Lord's glory, not not the the beatific vision that Elisha saw in the coming of the chariots to take Elisha to the heavens, but it's in securing help and maybe an army that will keep him in power and sustain his position. Joash doesn't want what Elisha wanted. Now, Ferguson says this, he wants to see God at work so long as God's working accommodates his desires. He, he wants God's hands, and this is at the heart of the chapter because hands are mentioned several times in this, uh, this chapter. But he wants the, the hand of the king, the, the executor of the king's power. The hand was the symbolic reference to the king's might. Joash comes seeking God's hand, seeking God's might, so they might no longer be subject to Hazael's merciless attacks, and so that he might be elevated as king to a higher degree. Now, now, hear me. At the root of this, there's some, it's not bad to want enemies subdued, but Joash doesn't want anything else. He, he does. He wants to see God put his life back together again, 
so he can continue in the same old ways. He has no interest in a renovation of the heart. He cries tears of remorse, but not repentance. Tears sorry for the position he finds himself in, not tears for being in that same position and wanting a change of heart. He isn't interested in tearing down the temples at Dan and Bethel. He has no interest in reducing to rubble the golden calves, melting them down and and giving the, the, the gold to the poor in their midst. And this leads to the test in our text. Elisha puts Joash to the test. He says to him, take a bow and a quiver of arrows. And he says, shoot. So he shoots. But notice how the the quivering hands of the prophet are over the king's hands as he pulls the arrow to the bow. The hands of the prophet are the hands that guide the kingdom. The hands of the king are the hands that are responsible for the tearing down of that kingdom. What what are you going to do about this, Joash? This is both in and out of your hands. It is through the king's hand that Israel will be saved, but only so long as his hands are guided by the hand of the prophet. That message, again, relayed to Israel. Be guided by the words and the life of the prophet of God. It isn't just come to him for rescue. Do that. But also live as the prophet is calling you to live. Elisha says, shoot, and this is the Lord's arrow of victory. You shall fight the Syrians until you make an end of them. Now, now don't mistake this declaration. It isn't prophetic as much as it is a call upon Joash, a test to go all the way and not halfway with God. And this is illustrated by what Elisha says to him next. He says, take the arrows and strike the ground with all of them. So he takes them, the, the symbol of victory, and instead of beating them down on the floor until they are broken and bent in ash, he takes them. And after beating them three times, he stops. The half-hearted king, with hands only willing to do the job halfway, And the sick prophet is angry. Why did you stop? Why didn't you finish the job? You you should have beaten those arrows to the ground five or, or six more times. And you would have had victory. The victory you're seeking. But you stopped short. And now you only have a halfway victory. You see, Elisha sees through the king. Now, Now think about this for just a second. We've been journeying with this man. He's at the end of his life. Last week we read how he he cried over his people. And now this king comes to him. And he can't do or won't do the thing that is necessary. To not just lead the people to victory over Hazael but won't do what is necessary to reform Israel and her worship all the way. You see, many of us want a God who will fix our problems. 
who will step in when we call with a victory over our enemies. There's an old like 70s movie called My Bodyguard. And uh, it took place like on a, like a high school campus. And there was a, a kid who acted as bodyguard for all these, these needy kids on his campus. And I remember watching that movie and then we, we reenacted it at Acoma Elementary School. We became Lord protectors of kids on the playgrounds. And I remember a man beating this kid Trevor down because he was beating some other little kid down. Like that's what we want. A God who will undo our messes so life can get back to normal. We use the terms with tears in our eyes. My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen. But we aren't willing to give the same God those idols. We we aren't willing to give ourselves over to regular worship on the Lord's day. We want the promises fulfilled, but aren't willing to give of ourselves wholly to the promise keeper. So so we go on and on in the same old ways. Just just God, don't, don't let the trouble caused by the same old ways be quite so bad. We want a halfway Christ. Either a Christ that rescues us from our troubles but doesn't demand much from us or a Christ that meets us halfway so we don't have to come to a complete end of ourselves and need to be completely, wholly rescued. We're told in verses 22 to 25 that Joash defeats Hazael and his son Ben-Hadad three, three times. Friends, many times God will give you what you want, and that's all he'll ever give you. And that's what Joash got. And there's so much more, so much more that he longs to give you, but you won't know it. You, you can't know it because you never even thought to ask for it. Because you wanted the, the turmoil of your choices to be lessened so you could get back to it, back to life on your terms, and worship when you can. You've limited what you want from God, and you end up with just what you wanted. If all you want is a halfway God, a halfway Christ, a Christ that wants you to be happy and will tidy up the mess a little, you will never know how much more you could receive from his hands. In truth, for most of us, we want our hands on the bow, our hands fixing what is broke, and God's hand only to rescue and fix, but not care and guide. And this is the the first point, the contact with the dying prophet. Our second is the contact with the dead one, In verse 20, the dying prophet becomes the dead prophet. Elisha has succumbed to his illness, and he's being buried. And we're told that a band of Moabites, it's springtime, and they're invading. 
and Elisha is being buried, and the the Moabites are coming. And maybe in haste, a man who is being buried during the raid is thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as his body touched the bones of Elisha, we read, he was revived and stood on his feet alive. Imagine being there, like kind of on the run, because the Moabites are somehow invading And you witness this whole scene. As soon as his body touches the bones of the prophet, alive. It's Elisha's last miracle, and it comes after he's died. Imagine uh, reading this in exile. Nebuchadnezzar has come and deported Judah, the lone remaining tribe of Israel. You read this. What is this about? And and you see this promise communicated in verse 23. The Lord will be gracious to his people. He will remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will not cast them out from his presence until now. And you are in the now. In exile. Cast out. touching the bones of Elisha in the grave and being revived and resurrected. See, Judah is thrown into the grave with Israel. Like, notice the story is the tribe we've been talking about, the the kingdom in the north. They're wiped away. By Ben-Hadad and later by the Assyrians. Judah is left. And Judah is taken off into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Though Judah is thrown into the grave with Israel, there's still hope for resurrection. There's still hope for resurrection for people who only go halfway. And it's only through contact with the prophet who bears the word and the presence and the spirit of God. Even though prophets die, God's people can be saved by clinging to the prophet and his good word. Death is not the end. God brings resurrection, revival. God restores. This is what God is about. Out of death, he brings life. This dead man comes into contact with the man of God. Resurrection. Death no more. The last act of Elisha's ministry is the inbreaking of life, of the life of God into this world. Where Israel's law and kings are incapable of saving Israel, what the law could not do, Paul says, as weakened as it was through the flesh, God does. And how does he do it? Through Jesus. Through Jesus, the Elijah that is to come, God will fulfill his promises. The preservation of the kingdom of the the north isn't under the dynasty of Jehu. It doesn't arrive from the people's faithfulness to the law because they have been unfaithful all the way to the end and putting Jesus onto the cross. It is through the covenant Lord that keeps his promises. 
Elijah's ministry points us to Jesus, not the halfway Jesus, but the whole Jesus. This is the man who cleansed lepers. This is the man who transforms water. This is the man who who multiplies bread and oil. This is the man who raises the dead. This is the man who touched Gentiles, dirty old Gentiles. This is the man who followed the Elijah that is to come. And the last event, the last event, Life for another comes from contact with the death of the prophet. Out of death comes life. Do you, do you, City Press, believe this? That, that by knowing the one who is crucified, life can be resurrected, revived, renewed, remade. Do you believe that there is a way for the, the hopeless, the poor, the broken, the hurting, the lost, for those who are spiritually dead to come into contact with Jesus and be made alive? And also, tragically, there is a way for one to come and ask Jesus for less than this. There's a way to come to Jesus and ask for less than saving life. Less than transformation and revival. Less than a whole and full life. That there, there's a way to come to Jesus and say to him, I want you. But only so that, so much. Only so that you'll fit into to my life and my wants and my desires. And to, to fix the thing. Maybe undo the consequences a little bit. And all the while crying. Tears of remorse but not repenting. Is your Christ a halfway Christ? Or have you found the power of resurrection life in sharing in faith in the death of the Lord Jesus? Because no matter where you fall this morning, halfway in, Not in at all, all the way in. Your hope is in the death of Jesus. You see, the story of Elijah all the way up to his death, the cry of his heart, I want more of you, God. Give me a double portion, God. He he wants all of him. If you don't know what to ask, God works in the asking. If you're settling for a halfway Jesus, there's hope. Our, like, thing is the rooster. And it's based on the story of Peter. Right, Peter meets Jesus in that boat after fishing all night and catching nothing. And then the boat overflows and he says, Oh, get away from me! I'm a sinful man. Down the road, Jesus starts talking about people eating his flesh and drinking his blood and they're like, I'm out. And, and Peter and some of the disciples are still there. And he goes, you don't want to leave too? And Peter goes, where would you go? Where would we go? You have the words of life. And we think maybe Peter gets it, but really Peter doesn't. He's just there, like not even halfway. Later on, Jesus will ask, who do the people say that I am? And some say, Elijah. Others say other prophets and rabbis. And 
Who do you say that I am? And Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood did not res- uh, give that to you, Simon Barjona, but the Spirit. And very next pericope, story, Jesus says, I'm going to go. This is true. And how do you know it's true? I'm going to go and die. And Peter says, Never! That shall never happen to you. Get thee behind me, Satan, Jesus says to him. Imagine. Imagine the one who said, you're the one. Where else will we go? Get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Imagine the one saying, being told, you're Satan, man. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human ones. Friends, whenever you find yourself in the place of having All those human ones. You have a God who is gracious with you. Jesus will say, though, next. Don't miss this. This very same text, he says, Whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. You know why? Because contact with me and my cross is the way to life. And if you want to save your life, you must lose it. Later, Peter is in the upper room. Jesus has got a basin. Washing feet. And Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. Then wash my feet and my hands and my head. And in that dinner, right after that, I'll never fall away, Lord. Before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny that you ever knew me three times. So we find Peter next back fishing. Back fishing. The same scene reenacted from when he first met met him. Jesus shows up and says, do you love me three times? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And the third time, frustrated, yes, Lord, you know. You used to dress yourself, Peter, and walk where you wanted. You used to go halfway with me. But I'm going to carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show what kind of death Peter would die to glorify God. And then he says, follow me. Peter doesn't stop, right? He looks over at John. What about him? I mean, he is us, y'all. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what business is that of yours? Follow me. Notice the call. There is no halfway. But Jesus doesn't meet you halfway. He goes all the way, all the way down, all the way to the cross. You don't have to go halfway. And we learn this not usually in a rush. We learn it like Peter. Slowly, going halfway, 
But Peter kept worshiping, tethered to that Jesus, believing and repenting. No halfway measures, no halfway Christ, but a Christ that takes a life, a broken life, a denying life, a deserting life, one that is repeatedly given over to his saving hands, creates a transformed life. I pray this prayer mantra, I want more of you, God. Not knowing what I'm asking. That more like Peter, following Jesus in faith, is taking up a cross that leads down a path to death, but also to resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I don't set aside that grace of God. Let's pray. Help us, God, to not set aside the grace of God and settle for something halfway. Help us to see that it's not my works and your work. It's all of your work. It's all of your work. And that you're a God that takes, man, even halfway faith. You're a God that creates faith out of nothing. Where once we were blind, dead in our trespasses and sins, you make us alive to God. You're that God. Not a halfway God. Make us disciples, Jesus. Who believe this by faith. And take up our cross in faith and follow you. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.